0: Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Allergy season in Kirksville. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Stephanie McGlumfrey. Um, as was mentioned before, Keevan and I work with international students. We're starting our 21st year. It's a great, it's a great job. We really love it. Um, I'm going to introduce myself, my family. So this is me and Keevan and our kids and my daughter-in-law. So Emma is here. She's over there. She <laughs> tripped over her feet and broke her foot. And um, Ethan, our son, and his wife live in Illinois and do youth ministry at a church there. And we're blessed today because Kievan's younger brothers are here, Nate and Gary Lee. Gary Lee works in Iowa City at the University of Iowa Hospital, and Nate is a missionary planning a church in Australia, and he's home on furlough. So we're lucky he works us into his schedule, his busy, busy schedule. We have fun. I have my most fun when I'm with them because they do everything that I love to do. So, <laughs> Okay. I'm kind of curious. We do have... Yes. Isn't that awesome? I told Kevin that was the title of my sermon, and he was like, really? I was like, yes, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. We have a lot of parents today. So kids, don't say anything. Do any of her parents know what a thirst trap is? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're a parent and you know what a thirst trap is. Yeah, I didn't either. I had to talk to my daughter about it this week. Okay, any brave students that want to explain what a thirst trap is? Oh, come on. Okay, Emma, what's a thirst trap? Yes, thank you, Emma. Thank you. So that's a thirst trap. I thought it fit in really well with what I'm talking about today, so. Um, The Urban Dictionary defines thirsty as too eager to get something, or desperate. This desperation is most frequently referring to sex, but it can be in reference to about anything. Compliments, validation, attention. According to a New York Times article that I read, thirst doesn't just want something, it needs it. When I hear this word need, I think of What About Bob. That's Kevin's favorite movie, and in it he goes, I need, I need, I need. It's kind of like that. Um, it encroaches on other people's boundaries and intrudes on other people's space, so the guy who eagerly favorites your every social post, he's thirsty. The coworker who's always fishing for the boss's praise, they're thirsty. The brand that tries very hard to be cool, thirsty. The acquaintance who's always suggesting you get together for brunch, she's thirsty. So, In our trip through the Beatitudes this semester, I get to talk to you today about the fourth Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst does imply a really strong desire. And sometimes in our culture, that maybe comes off as a little bit too needy. Um, But that really shouldn't surprise us, because we've been looking at the Beatitudes, and they're not exactly culturally friendly, are they? Poverty, mourning, meekness, all these attributes, what do they imply? They imply weakness. So, I've decided to read our passage today from the New Living Translation um, because I wanted to give you an idea of how hard it is for translators to translate the Bible from Greek into English. And whenever you find a word and you look it up in different translations and it's a different word in every translation, that's a good sign that the Greek word is really, really hard. To understand, okay? So as I read it in the NLT, I want you to maybe pay attention to how is it different from what we have been reading in the ESV. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, The ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So I don't know how many of you are willing to admit it sitting here today, but many of you are probably hungry and thirsty today. You feel maybe an insatiable longing for something, something still not just right in your life. You're probably restless, don't know why, John Piper says, restlessness and longing are universal traits of the human heart. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we have an inconsolable longing. I think um, when I study American culture, I think we automatically try to fill up that longing by doing things and experiencing things. Um, FOMO, the very fact that we have fear of missing out says a, a lot about our culture. So we do things like see as much of the world as we can, or accomplish, add, accomplish, do things that add accomplishments to our resume. We have sex. We play and watch sports. We try drugs. We get drunk at parties. We get fit. We achieve scholastic excellence. So many things that we do and experience And I'm an old lady, and I'm here to tell you that you can go ahead and figure out how to make that exotic bucket list happen, but the longing is still going to be there. So the words of C.S. Lewis ring more and more true. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus says that what we are really hungry for is righteousness. Just like the other attributes in the Beatitudes, this one doesn't actually seem satisfying, does it? I mean, does being righteous seem more satisfying than, uh, say, falling in love? Before I looked at this word study, I would have gone with the common English definition of what righteousness means, morally upright behavior. Jesus was saying people are blessed when they hunger and thirst after being morally upright. Well, you know what? I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The original Greek word is dikaios. And in classical Greek, that word meant instruction. So then my next step was to take a look at several translations of verse 6 and see how different interpreters translated the word the chaos. So I'm going to give you some examples. The Amplified Version always gives us more than we actually need. But it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Those who actively seek right standing with God, for they will be satisfied. Contemporary English, God blesses those people who want to obey him more than to eat and drink. They will be given what they want. ESV says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. J.B. Phillips says, happy are those who are hungry and thirsty for goodness, for they will be fully satisfied. The message: You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink, and the best meal you'll ever eat. New century: They are blessed to hunger and thirst after justice, for they will be satisfied. And as an added note, I on Friday mornings I get together with a couple Japanese girls, and um, we talk about we have conversations about American culture and. Um, so I was telling them about this. So we looked it up in the Japanese Bible and it's really fascinating because the translation in Japanese, it was funny because the word gi means righteousness. And they were like, I have no idea what that means. And I was like, yeah, Americans don't really know what righteousness means either. And so, um, they had to look it up. What does gi mean? Um, but their translation is actually happier. Those who are starving for the true way. For they will be satisfied. I love that. I think that's really cool. Um, So when when this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it contained this very very broad meaning. It can mean truth. It can mean faithfulness. It can mean judgment. It can mean loving kindness. It can mean grace. So so in the Old Testament. Righteousness did not really mean morally upright behavior, as our English translation would suggest. And another surprising fact is that the word was almost exclusively used to describe God. Never a person. I think that tells us a lot. In the Psalms, it says, referring to God, he loves righteousness. And it meant God loves to perform righteous deeds. Doesn't mean God loves righteousness in people. It means he loves to perform righteous deeds himself. So depending on the different contexts, this righteousness can mean God loves to give deliverance. He loves to give salvation, vindication, healing, There are pages and pages about this word, the chaos, in my Greek word study books. I I drove a student recently to St. Louis to have an endoscopy, and I didn't want to take all my books, so I just took pictures, and like half the pictures on my iPad are about this word here. It's just so, so broad and rich and bigger than just hungering and thirsting after trying to be morally perfect. But what happened is by the time of Christ, the rabbis were teaching that was what it meant. The laws, they believed the laws were intended to be a way for people to acquire merit in the sight of God. So one's righteousness ensured one's presence in the kingdom of God. This included works of charity, like feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. It also included works of mercy, like mourning with mourners and comforting the brokenhearted and visiting the sick and those in prison. Those are all good things. But their, their concept of righteousness was God helps those who help themselves. So you do all these things to build up righteous merit so that you could go to heaven. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for this wrong understanding of righteousness because their idea fostered pride and competition. So God had given them this assignment to create a just society that would shine as a light to the Gentiles around them. But the Pharisees Sorry, oh, I can't do this. Okay, the Pharisees narrowed their vision so that instead of thinking about their their, um, influence on the outside world, they began to narrow their vision and just start competing with each other in their acts of righteousness. They got caught up in trying to impress each other and lost contact with what their mission was for the world. And still today, in the church, doesn't this sound familiar? Yeah. (laughs) Our compulsive nature frequently tempts us with the illusion that we can somehow, we wouldn't say it out loud, but that we can somehow work our way to heaven. We seek to redeem ourselves through self-achievement, self-sacrifice, self-fulfillment, but in his letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul says, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So German theologian Rudolf Boltmann says the correct understanding of righteousness means in a right relationship, not ethically upright. And in Jesus' parables, why do we see? The well-fed and the healthy never seem to make it to the wedding feast. It's the poor and the weak that accept his invitation and come eagerly. Because why? Because they're hungry. I am so in awe of our Savior and his tenderness in dealing with people who expressed and sometimes didn't even express their longings to him. One of my favorite stories is when, when John gives the account of Jesus' impromptu conversation with a woman he met in Samaria at a well. In those days, only a husband could initiate divorce, and this woman had been abandoned by five different men. Jesus knew her. He could have pointed out to her where she was to blame in the failure of those marriages. But instead, he sensed her thirst. So he went on to tell her that the water she was actually fetching would never satisfy her, and he offered her righteousness that would. For each one of us, I truly believe at some point in our lives we're going to experience that kind of thirst. And I'm not just talking about something we merely hope for or wish for, but something like the Japanese Bible, it says you're starving for, that you feel that you need it to survive. And for many of us, it's different things. For some of us, it's going to be love, for others, it's going to be security, for others, it's going to be self worth. For others, it's going to be peace. And many of us have tried to quench that thirst through excessive control or addictions, other inappropriate ways. But just like the woman at the well, that type of water we drink is stale. It's been sitting at the bottom of a dark, dank well but the water that Christ gives to us is like what comes from a fresh, bubbling spring. Um, I've mentioned this before other times I've talked, but I attend weekly AA meetings um, as an act of solidarity and understanding the disease that some of my family members never recovered from. And the first few times I went to these meetings, and honestly, even now sometimes, I am just overwhelmed by what I experienced there. Um, As I sit and I listen to their stories, I can't help but wonder why the church isn't more like these meetings. AA runs on two principles, radical honesty and radical dependence with both God and other people. And so these people are willing to do radical things because they're hungry and thirsty for something to change their lives. The church is to be made up of a community of people like AA members. We share a mutually acknowledged weakness too. We need a righteousness that we cannot get on our own. As it says in the big book of AA, we've tried to hold on to our old ideas And the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. So this faith righteousness means the end of self-righteousness. And I really think sometimes when we read that word righteousness in the Bible, what we're thinking is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is not really righteousness at all. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means we are ready for an entirely different way of processing life. The old mind, right? We talked about this with the Pharisees. The old mind sees everything through this narrow lens of our own private needs and our own private hurts and our own private angers and memories. But when we come to Christ, there's this widening of the lens for a better picture. And it's ability to switch perspectives from our perspective to Christ's perspective. I like N.T. Wright's translation of this verse. It's wonderful news for people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. They're gonna, you're going to be satisfied. I love this because it shows us that righteousness and justice are like these two things that sing in harmony with each other. They go hand in hand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor, and he died in prison during World War II because he was a Nazi dissident. And he said this in what he wrote, in the world, the Christians are a colony of the true home, a true home. If on this campus there's someone who gets in trouble with the law and everyone else distances themselves from them, CCF should be quick to love them. If on this campus there's an international student who gets sick and can no longer work, CCF should be the first to offer food and healing. If there's a minority student on campus that feels oppressed, CCF should rise up to help them. If there's someone here that doesn't seem to belong or fit in, CCF should make room for them. If the rest of the students on this campus seek profit and self-fulfillment, CCF should seek sacrifice and service. Because the world around us wants to destroy their enemies. But we're called to love them. Righteousness, justice. We aren't to hunger after the world's idea of justice. We're to seek after God's idea of justice. So N.T. Wright, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, reminds his readers that Jesus wasn't simply a good teacher, okay? People will say what wonderful teachings there are in the Sermon on the Mount, and that if only people would obey it, the world would be a better place. But if you think Jesus simply sitting there telling people how to behave properly is what he's doing we're going to miss out on what's really going on. These blessings, this wonderful news, they're not just saying try hard to live like this. Jesus is declaring an announcement to this crowd on this hill. He's telling them sitting there that something is about to start happening. Follow me, he's, telling, he's saying to these early disciples, because in him, The living God was doing a new thing. He was at work in the world in a fresh way. Jesus was starting a new era. In our world still, most people think that those who are successful, healthy, politically victorious, and wealthy are the ones who are blessed. Think about it. Somebody says to you something. You said, yeah, I'm so blessed. Well, you're saying, yeah, good things have happened to me. Yeah? In the past few weeks, what we've heard instead is that Jesus says his kingdom is made up of the humble, the poor, the doubters, the mourners, and now those who aren't seeking after self achievement but are instead depending upon God. One of my favorite Christian authors is Philip Yancey, and he tells a story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And he talks about an angry man in his church. And this man's name was Adolphus. And Adolphus had seen all the atrocities the human race was capable of in the Vietnam War. He was mentally unstable. And the people were scared of him. But every week he was in church. If you missed the bus, then he walked five miles to make it to church. And actually some people quit attending church. Because they were uncomfortable being around him. But the church leadership persevered in welcoming him because they knew he kept coming back, not out of anger, but out of hunger. As we come to our time to meditate together on the sacrifice of Jesus that makes it possible for us to be righteous, I'd like to ask you are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Because this is what Jesus has to say to you. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come. Take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Every Sunday, when we take the Lord's Supper together, I look around this gathering of people as we line up to tear off a bit of bread, dip it in the cup of juice, and wait for the bread to soak up that juice, and then one by one, we silently walk back to our seats and try to not dribble the juice on ourselves, and we do this ridiculous thing every week, and it must seem so bizarre to anybody who hasn't done it their entire lives. Communion with Christ, remembering him together, is not simple symbolism. It's utter radicalism. It is this crazy belief that eating his body and drinking his blood will satisfy all that we hunger and thirst for. In the words of Anne Voskamp, I never want to stop tasting the broken grain and the grape there at the back of my longing throat. Let's pray. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Amen.